Welcome to Talk Commerce, where we explore how merchants, agencies, and developers experience commerce and the communities they work and live in. Don't forget to collect your free joke at the end of this intro. This week, we interview Brittany Allen, who is on the digital trust and safety team at SIFT Fraud Prevention. We learn about SIFT and how it helps merchants decrease friction in their checkout while also stopping fraudulent transactions. We talk about the Merchant Risk Council and some of the latest hot topics, the big one being cryptocurrency. Brittany gives us some great examples on what merchants can do to mitigate fraud. And we talk about how consumers also have a responsibility in their own fraud prevention. We go over the SIFT Fraud Index and why fraud is up more than 300% in the last two years. We talk about the fraud economy and ways that merchants can help protect themselves. Not to leave out running, we learn that Brittany is a budding runner and has recently completed a 5K. Brent exerts pressure to sign up for the 2022 New York City Marathon. Today's joke. What rhymes with orange? No, it doesn't. (laughs) The Talk Commerce podcast is sponsored by Swift Daughter. E-commerce developers solve problems daily. In fact, some of those seem like mountainous hurdles that must be climbed in a matter of hours. Stress levels can go through the roof. No wonder the plague of burnout affects developers too. Ah, but there's a vaccine for that. Investing time in your career will take you farther than you ever imagined. Meet Swift Daughter. Swift Daughter exists to help you become the e-commerce hero that is indispensable and irreplaceable at your company. We do this through Magento Certification Study Materials and Joseph Maxwell's most recent book, The Art of E-Commerce Debugging. Go to swiftotter.com to learn more about how you can quickly climb the ranks in your quest to be a better developer. While you're there, use the coupon code TALKCOMMERCE for 15% off any digital goods at swiftotter.com. Cloud is the new normal for companies of any size. Buying, maintaining, upgrading, and disposing of machines is expensive and complicated. Amazon Web Services, managed by eWay Corp, offers an easy-to-use, flexible, cost-effective solution to all your infrastructure needs. eWay Corp can provide a secure, reliable, scalable, high-performance network that will make your office hum. Not literally. Eway Corp has saved its customers an average of 31% on their IT costs while adding 62% to the bottom line efficiency. To top that, their customers have seen 43% fewer security incidents. Go to eWayCorp.com to learn how you can start saving money and headaches by moving to the cloud. That's E-W-A-Y-C-O-R-P.com. My name is Brent Peterson and I'm your host. Please remember to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. And now, Talk Commerce. All right, welcome to this fraud edition of Talk Commerce. Today we have Brittany Allen. Brittany, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell us what you do, and uh, maybe one of your passions in life. Sure. So, as I said, I'm Brittany Allen. I have a job title that doesn't make too much sense when you first hear it. I am a trust and safety architect for SIFT. But what that means is that I'm somebody that has merchant experience. I actually spent about a decade working on trust and safety and fraud prevention teams for merchants from Etsy to Airbnb to a luxury marketplace called First Dibs and then a secondhand sales marketplace called Let Go. And I have come to SIFT to be able to provide that experience to both guide the product, to provide education for our customers, for pretty much anyone in the fraud industry through you know conversations like the one that we're going to have today. So it really is a unique position to be in and I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Great, wow, oh, that's, yeah, go ahead. You had mentioned a passion, I almost let that go. Uh, I was inspired by the picture behind you of the runners. So I have recently tried to get into running by doing races here through the New York road racers here in New York City. And my overall goal is really just to increase my sort of cardio stamina for my Taekwondo classes that I take because I am much older than the teenagers who run circles around me and leave me in like a sweaty 
gasping heap at the end of class. So I have tried to bring running uh, into my life in order to improve that. Are, are you yourself a runner? Uh, yes, I am. And uh, if, if, if you were to listen to my podcast, you would see that I'd, eventually I lead it down the road to running. Uh, I did the New York Marathon in 2019. Uh, I have one major to do, which is Tokyo. Hopefully that happens in 2022. Um, and um, yeah, I, I very much believe that running transforms people. Uh, I, I'm also involved in local charity that that helps runners get back on their feet through running, literally. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, both through through the physicalness of, of running and through the community of running and through the body. I mean, there's, there's a transform transformation that you have to make. And as you go to train for the New York marathon in 2022, you will realize that, you know, there's a commitment that you have to make to making that schedule happen. You know, you'll have, mm -hmm. you'll have a, a number of long runs that you'll have to do and uh and if you choose to do individual workouts in between those long runs um that that all those commitments help you to organize and change your life in a positive way so i hope okay. i said all that in a succinct way you you really did although uh thinking about going into a marathon in 2022 is terrifying i have worked my way up to a 5k uh, and we'll see where I go from there. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, well, today we're not going to talk. Well, we, well, maybe we'll talk about running again towards the end. But today we're going to talk about fraud. And tell us a little bit about SIFT and uh, what it, how it helps people in terms of fraud prevention. Yeah. So SIFT is a fraud prevention solution. And we're a, a leader in digital trust and safety, which means that we focus on allowing customers to unlock revenue without taking on too much risk so that they don't have to put their goals aside for growth and expansion while still being very cognizant of keeping customer friction to a minimum whenever possible. And we cover quite a few different fraud scenarios that we're able to, to help with, whether it's payment fraud via stolen credit cards or account takeover as a result of data breaches, or something that we'll be talking about uh, in detail today, or even triangulation fraud, which is a uh, type of fraud that affects retailers the most. And it can be a, a scam that is run on another website, such as a marketplace or a social media platform that then directs that fraudulent traffic to a retailer. So we've, we've seen it all and we try to keep as on top of emerging trends as possible. And it's just something that will never go away. And so I have quite a bit of job security, although I, I hate to say that, that fraud will persist, but fraud is only growing and increasing year over year. Yeah, I know that there's always tension between the friction of adding fraud protection for a merchant through the, for, through the buyer journey and not sending your product to the Philippines um, because somebody's just purchased it from a credit card in Austin, Texas. Um, and those are very extreme cases, obviously, but uh, there is a more uh, granular level in, in, which, um, in which every merchant needs to be aware of fraud. And my personal, like what, what we've had a lot of experience with, especially kind of moving into the Mexican market is that uh, when we first starting, started helping merchants in Mexico, they had call centers and they would not ship anything until they actually called and physically spoke to the, to the person who is receiving that good. Um, and so I'm imagining that most American merchants or most merchants that, that you would speak to don't have the capacity to do that or the willingness to do that. So maybe you could just maybe speak a little bit about the experience that you have or, or that how SIFT can help and experience around how a merchant would see that in their uh, buyer's journey. Well, absolutely. I mean, just think about you as a consumer and how many things you've bought online in the past month. 
if every company you purchase from gave you a phone call to confirm the details of that order and then maybe even ask a few additional questions where you could tell they were trying to figure out uh, is this really the person that made the, the order is this really who we think we're speaking with then you would be frustrated and i know me personally i screened so many calls on my phone i probably wouldn't even answer that phone call they would probably have to call me back or i would have to call them back or i would just get really frustrated in order from someone else. But the key ideas to keep in mind for putting that positive customer friction into a fraud prevention plan is to be able to know and recognize what your like legitimate customers or your expected customer behavior is, and then target that friction to the behavior or to the patterns that are abnormal to that. So you had mentioned a big geographic distance earlier of an order in the Philippines and a credit card in Austin, Texas. There might be some cases where a bigger geographic distance isn't that odd or isn't that out of place. Uh, one thing I can think of is when I worked for uh, a luxury marketplace, there were quite a few people who were extremely high net worth and were completely globetrotters and having to look specifically at the locations they were purchasing from if we had a credit card that was uh, from london and we had the purchase being made from a yacht in ibiza but it was shipping to a chalet in aspen that was actually pretty good and it didn't matter that we had all of those geographic mismatches because it fits sort of the expected uh, behavior and patterns of one of our high net worth clients. So knowing what you're expecting to see and then finding the aberrations to that pattern can help you decide when is it appropriate to maybe send a um, extra step for notification? When is maybe it appropriate to ask them to re-enter credit card information instead of just clicking instant checkout to use whatever credit card information is stored within the account? And those are those decisions that can be made to let a vast majority of your legitimate customers through without hitting those roadblocks. Yeah, maybe you could uh, speak to a little bit about how um, how SIFT would help that merchant and not put those, uh, well, put the roadblocks up. And I know you kind of alluded to that, but maybe help them understand why this, A, it's important, but, and B, that it's not going to stop people from buying. Absolutely. So we work with about 34,000 sites at the last count that I have, and we examine just an extremely high number of signals within our system every day for our merchants. And with that, we're able to look at those patterns. So for example, if you're, let's say, a subscription billing merchant, because we know that subscription billing is a tough case to win for chargeback disputes. I've also spent a lot of my career answering chargebacks, so those are always top of mind for me. So if you are a subscription billing merchant and you're trying to determine upon uh, creating an account and signing up for that service, whether or not this is a legitimate customer or it's a fraudulent individual, we would be looking at their connection to potentially other fraudulent activity within our global network. So there's a custom way that we would address fraud specifically for that merchant based on kind of what I mentioned about their own patterns of fraud they see or their expected customer journey on their site. And then also our global approach of looking at fraud overall so that if there's a potential fraud ring that we've already identified that has affected some merchants, we can stop it before it spreads to others if we're able to see that within our network. But we can base it on quite a few different patterns of behavior, whatever the merchant is willing to work with us with. I've, I've sat in on so many conversations of both prospective customers and then existing customers working on ways to tune our machine learning approach to fraud prevention. And again, while that global model is extremely helpful for catching fraud they may not have yet been able to even anticipate happening on their platform a lot of it comes down to being able to you know help them one-on-one -on -one 
and address their specific concerns without getting into like too many specific examples there. I hope that was close enough to what you were looking for. No, that was really good. And um, I, I liked what you said about tuning the AI. Um, I think that a lot of merchants are really worried about false positives that they're going that they're they're going to have their valued customers are going to get blocked from purchasing and then like you said if there's too much friction they decide they're just going to buy it somewhere else um how in those conversations do you go over some of the factors and that would bring up false positives and help them go through that process and then i think how long does it take to kind of get the the ball rolling and 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 knowing the customers yeah so as far as that conversation around false positives the first thing that becomes apparent to me is what is this merchant's risk tolerance are they someone that is maybe let's say having a really huge issue with chargeback disputes they've already been put on certain warning programs or penalized by credit card issuers and their biggest goal is keep all of the fraud off of the platform they're likely going to have a really low risk tolerance and be way more uh, likely to reject orders, to block things, to put lots of friction up. And so they're going to potentially have more false positives just through their reaction. So we need to then be able to show them within SIP's tool, you know, how we come to our decision about whether or not a particular um, transaction is legitimate or it needs to be looked at or needs to be rejected and kind of bring them back to what our expected uh, sort of level of risk tolerance would be. But then you also see merchants that are completely in the opposite. Um, one of the worst quotes that I've ever been told directly by someone who was at the operations uh, management level was that we don't have a fraud problem. There is no fraud. But it was just because that trust and safety team was extremely good at identifying fraud. They didn't have a lot of losses. And so because he didn't see losses, he thought, well, there's no real fraud, not realizing that it was sort of, you know, I'm, now I'm going to show myself as someone who did not watch Game of Thrones, but I'm pretty sure it's like a sort of a Hodor moment, if I'm making that comment the right way, having, again, not seen it and doing my best there. Uh, that's literally what the fraud team was doing, trying to hold back all of the fraudsters trying to get in. And so in that case, we needed to sort of tell him that there actually was a lot more risk out there and, and calibrate back towards the other direction. So having those discussions with the merchants is, it's, it's really a fun part of it because it makes me think back to my own experience on trust and safety teams, trying to make that decision and making that decision siloed, you know, by myself, really without any kind of consultative assistance is, is nowhere near as beneficial as being able to you know, speak with somebody and get that overall industry perspective on what you're doing. I, I'm sure you'll find when you speak to merchants about fraud prevention is that they can't go to school for fraud prevention, really. Nobody gets a degree in that. And there are some conferences and some educational opportunities out there, but so much of it is just learned on the job that it means that there is a lot of doubt for some merchants about whether or not they're taking that correct approach. Yeah, I mean, you bring up some, um, you, you bring up some great, um, great points there. Um, one of the things is the creepy factor that people that like Big Brother, and I know that we're all used to now, you know, going into Facebook. Um, I'm also a cyclist. So for whatever reason, every single ad I see on Facebook is for some new Jersey or cycling product. And um, I know that they're watching me and I've, I, you know, obviously I clicked on one of the ads, but now all I get is cycling ads. Um, how do you, how do you get away from that idea that it's going to be not that they're watching you, but making it for making it easy for the consumer to know why these steps are in place. Right. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. After I ran one of my first road races here in New York, I just keep getting ads on Instagram and other social media platforms for like the 
the free, not free, but the virtual ones you can join and then get a very fancy, almost like uh, animated looking medal that you'll just you know, pay to run the virtual 5K for. I, I'm getting all of those as well. So I know exactly what that feels like to have a single search or single activity online suddenly turn into what you know they think your identity is across all platforms. But we've really, as consumers, become used to and appreciative of some of those points of friction. One really common example to call out is when you've logged into a website from a new device or from a new location and you get that email saying, hey, is this you? We just noticed this. If it's you, don't worry about it. Don't do anything. But if so, click here. You can proceed to reset your password. You could take action. Um, we've gotten to the point where that email doesn't really worry anybody. As far as the feedback I've heard, I've never really, or I don't hear any more people complaining about that being analogous to a Big Brother event, but instead just sort of an expected checkbox that shows that that particular website is, you know, looking out for the safety of whatever's in your account. I mean, that could be something where if it's not an account that is very important to you, maybe you'd be thrown. But if it's something that has stored loyalty points like your airline, frequent flyer miles, or if it has you know, stored payment methods, or if it's your bank, I do think that's gotten well out of the creepy zone and is something that people are maybe not comforted by, maybe that's too strong of a word, but at the very least think is a positive sign. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I, I can say that I appreciate those emails that I get and I have a you know a number of devices and uh, not that I'm a globe trotter, but I do, I used to, when we could travel, I traveled all over the place and uh, I would always get those emails, especially, like, I guess, especially when logging into, um, into my bank, but, um, uh, but definitely logging into some of our, of the merchant accounts, um, namely Amazon, that you would get some follow-ups on those just to make sure you, that you're you. And if it's just an email or a two-factor authentication, it's very easy to, to just move through that cycle. Mm -hmm. And I think myself as, as somebody who's purchasing something, um, I appreciate that they're trying to stop somebody from another place. You know, if if I if it wasn't really me in India, uh, it I, I appreciate the fact that they're not going to send that keyboard to somebody in Mumbai because um, you know whatever. So I, I think that I think you're exactly right. I think that's come, become very common now, and that uh, merchants expect that. Uh, so you mentioned conferences. Um, there was was there just a bigger conference in Las Vegas around uh, fraud? There was the Merchant Risk Council, which usually holds its annual Las Vegas conference in March, uh, but did not get to have it in 2020. And then this year had to bump it later in the year. We just met in Las Vegas and I was really excited to see some familiar faces from the fraud world. And be able to share stories that we just, you know, you don't send long emails listing out fraud patterns that you're seeing, but when you're sitting there over lunch or over drinks, the stories start bubbling up and hearing what people have been running into this year and, and the past 18 months even was just, just great. Like for me personally, that's one of my favorite parts of getting together at conferences is sharing those stories and trying to work through fraud patterns together and trying to basically work as the team as we know that fraudsters are not hesitant to communicate with each other and even share their knowledge so we have to be doing the same yeah so uh, tell us uh, I, I think tell us some of the the things that were on the edge now for fraud or what is coming up I think crypto is one of the big things that's in the in the in the news right now and with some of the some of the countries like El Salvador and uh, and Nicaragua, I think, moving to allow crypto or Bitcoin as one of their main currencies. How is that factoring in for fraud? Yeah, there's a lot of questions surrounding it, especially for people who are in charge of the payments side of their business. They're not just fraud, but even payments. For them, 
one question that kept coming up is, should we even support crypto payments? Like, is that a payment method that our customer base would want to use? Or will we be putting a lot of effort in this year trying to, you know, move into the black in November, trying to make sure we have a great holiday season? Will we be putting too much effort into supporting crypto and then have little conversion because maybe our customer base just isn't the right type to be paying in that way. So a lot of discussion there about whether it's a fit. And then for those who determined that it was a fit and it is something that they want to support or are already looking to support and moving to support, then there's that discussion of what is the appropriate level of KYC or of identity checks and what is my responsibility it can be very attractive to know that if you're accepting a payment via Bitcoin, there's not going to be a chargeback at the end, that that is a payment that can't later be disputed and the funds can't be clawed back from the merchant. But what even is their sort of responsibility or their best practice for supporting those payments? And a lot of those questions are ones that certain merchants are tackling for the first time and also then trying to understand you know, how the compliance centers around crypto. Uh, I love testing out new exchanges and new wallets on behalf of SIFT, but I am in one of the most difficult states to do that, unfortunately. I'm in New York, which means that there are quite a few exchanges and other services that don't have the appropriate licensure to operate the state, and so I can't use and test them. And I even had a discussion with one merchant at that conference I referenced, and they talked about which exchange they partner with. And I was like, oh, that's great. I can't use it. So are you aware that your entire you know, movement into accepting crypto won't be as easy for someone in New York City, the biggest city in the United States, and you're primarily a, have an American market for your customers? They won't be able to use it. And they weren't aware of that. So there's a lot of, of learning and education that needs to continue. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I think that's very interesting. And I know that I've got interested in crypto, you know, five or six years ago. As a Magento uh, uh, agency, we build out extensions. And, uh, and that, that was just on the cusp of what people were trying or starting to think about for taking payments. And now I wish, of course, that I would have taken a bunch of Bitcoins five or six years ago. And I have friends <laughs> that do are holding on to them, but uh, that's another story. Um, so I have those that, diamond hands. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, so that's that's very interesting. Uh, what other items came up at, around the uh, around fraud and fraud prevention in the conference? So a lot of discussion about focusing on e-commerce and the digital economy. So there were companies that had either never sold online before and were forced to by the pandemic, or who really didn't have very robust e-commerce platforms or e-commerce customer flows and were forced to make those better and had to adapt to maybe even structures of uh, order fulfillment that they had never done before, such as buy online, pick up in store, curbside pickup, or any of those. And there were also discussions of chargeback disputes that result from that. So if you were a merchant who was totally okay with the process of allowing a purchase online and then shipping it to the customer, and then maybe if they uh, the customer disputed that purchase's non-delivery, you knew what to do in response. If instead that was a curbside pickup order and you don't obtain a signature upon pickup or you don't rescan the credit or you don't have any step there to confirm when it was picked up and have that information on hand, when you get that item not received dispute later, what do you do? So there were quite a few discussions there. And then also making that global. So some companies that are operating in one uh, geographic location that may not be under a lot of restrictions might have another market, their secondary market, that is still under quite a few restrictions where those physical stores can't reopen, for example, and trying to balance what the different sort of approaches are to customers who may be either able to go into a store or not, all of those things sort of rolled into one. It's been that really challenging year. And to not even you know, 
go too far in the opposite direction, but uh, there was a presentation that I really enjoyed focused on travel and what airlines have been doing over the past year to sort of reduce their reliance on credit card payments and try to move into alternate payments to you know, make themselves less exposed to chargeback disputes. So there was a lot of discussion about how can merchants keep up with this digital acceleration that has been sent years in the future because of the pandemic. Yeah, I think um, you bring up a good point about buy online and pick up in the store. A lot of merchants think that they, they, have, they have less exposure to fraud because this person is physically going to come in. But I think that sometimes they miss the point that it could be the wrong person coming in. Uh, how, I guess, how can, I, I, I think there's no difference in the buy or from the purchasing side for the merchant, but how, how do they, how does it, what, would, what, what advice would you give to a merchant in that case in making sure that they have some fraud protection in place? Right. So I actually, I read a, a story, I believe it was in the LA Times, maybe a year ago, it was focused on last summer, and it was about a restaurant that uh, was mostly a dine-in location, but had to expand to takeout and delivery in response to the to pandemic shutdowns. And they then got hit so hard by fraud that was specifically buy online and then pick up in the restaurant that they actually went out of business. And in those cases, they, they were sort of doing what you said of if the customer comes in, you know, if they're in the store, that has to, that can't be a fraudster, that can't be someone that bold and brazen to walk into my establishment, look at me face to face, smile as I hand them the food and then leave. And that ends up being a person who used a stolen credit card to make that purchase. But that's exactly what happened to them. And they didn't have anything that took the place of proof of delivery. And so when they got all of the chargeback disputes through their payment processor, and they were asked then, let's, say, let's just say they all came through with a reason code fraud, prove the cardholder was involved. If they didn't have a sort of shipping address, a proof of delivery, if they didn't have anything like that to be able to show, then they were pretty stuck. Um, that brings up another important point is for customer friction is there are quite a few merchants and other businesses out there that will collect or ask for as little information as possible from a consumer to then process their order because we don't like, especially for placing a mobile order, we don't like having to type out a whole bunch of information just to make a purchase. But that number or that amount of information that the customer that the merchant has is what they're gonna fall back on to respond to those disputes. And that's something we've been trying to help merchants with also here at SIFT is showing them what we have available within the SIFT tool that they might be able to use for that chargeback representment process. But it is, it is a real challenge also, and I won't get on my soapbox about chargeback disputes and how they have, uh, those rules have not changed in a long time but you're fitting kind of within the narrow parameter of what is acceptable compelling evidence as determined by credit card issuers and they haven't moved you know as quickly to adapt to the way that e-commerce is moving and adapting year over year yeah i think you i like the i like your point about the pickup in a restaurant and most i mean a lot of restaurant tours are very small businesses and they're they they would depend on whomever they use for that order online. And I can, I can just say from my own experience that um, uh, I have a Thursday night running group and we finish next to an Indian restaurant and we always finish by seven. So I typically have a Thursday night order that I pick up for myself and my wife. And I, and they, then they put my name on a big whiteboard as well. So like, I just walk in and I say, okay, Brent's order is ready. Mm -hmm. And they just hand it to me. I mean, I know that they know me now, but at that first order, it would be so easy a to, you know, just make the order with a fake credit card and then go and pick it up. But B, 
at some point I could just walk in and say, I'm Brent and take my order. I think that an educate, like the education process for a smaller merchant is really, really important in this industry. And, um, I don't know how to get that word out to those smaller merchants. Uh, and maybe some of that, it lies on the, on the, on the credit card companies to kind of educate them. How do you, where do you see that starting to help educate the people down lower that aren't necessarily savvy to know some of these things? Oh yeah. And you made me think of a really wild example that I heard years and years ago of a, I won't say where it was, but it was a fraud ring in a particular city that had found a restaurant where they accepted quite a few online orders and the screen that displayed those orders as they came in was visible to the restaurant so you could enter and sit in the restaurant and see order information come up that order information included the customer's name and phone number and what this fraudster would do was either jot down or take a photo of that screen step outside call those individuals and say i'm sorry we, we just ran into a problem. Your credit card didn't go through. Could you give me that number again, please? Cut, pretending to be the restaurant, citing their order, the customer didn't suspect anything at all. They would write down the full credit card number, say, thank you so much, we'll get that right away. Then of course the customer would get their order anyway because the restaurant was already working on it. And the fraudster would step away and make lots of high value purchases with those credit card numbers and do that again and again and again for just the cost of going to that restaurant and buying, you know, one slice of pizza or whatever it was that they would eat while they did that. And that was a really small merchant, one location, one restaurant. Their focus is not going to be fraud prevention and they might not even be aware of the need for that type of education. So how do you reach them? Well, there's, I think, an increasing awareness just in our society of scams and of the things that maybe you should be suspicious about and keeping people's information more private. So hopefully as we shift into having more and more of a privacy focus on our, our daily lives, that will sort of trickle down as far as education. But for any merchant that's actively seeking to learn about what best practices are, there are a lot of industry organizations that will provide that education for free, either via webinars or via newsletters. Um, we try to do something similar at SIFT as well, where we do blog posts and we try to uh, speak to the media about emerging and ongoing fraud trends. I've done a lot myself talking about fraud forums that operate on both the dark and the deep web and uh, encrypted messaging platforms such as Telegram. So really, while I would love to have a perfect solution, it's sort of a uh, meeting in the middle of them needing to also you know, be willing to seek out that information. And now I start to sound like my old self. Um, in a former life, before I moved into fraud prevention, I used to be a high school history teacher. So now I'm worried that I sound too much like asking students to do their work. Yeah, that you're exactly right. It is up to the, I mean, ultimately it's up to the merchant and hopefully after the first or second or third time that they get scammed, they realize that, hey, I have to put something to mitigate this problem. Um, I, so you, you did speak about some of the things that SIFT is doing. And I have a report here that you put out um, uh, your your fraud you put out a fraud index, mm -hmm. and uh, it it says the ATO grew by three hundred and seven percent. So first, uh, can you tell us what ATO is and explain that part of it, and then tell us some insights on it and tell us why that's important. Yeah, so ATO is account takeover, and it is the result of either somebody's credentials or login credentials, which could be username and password or email and password combos being leaked via data breaches or just otherwise being uh, fished and tested against websites. So you don't have to be the website that was breached in order to have a whole bunch of those credentials packaged and resold under your brand name on the dark web, because as part of the larger fraud economy, just the interconnected network of fraudsters who each have a role to play within these schemes, 
uh, within that, they are more than happy to test credentials to see if the credentials that were leaked from company A also work on company B's platform. Unfortunately, because about we found 65% of consumers reuse the same password on all websites, I like to call that 65% of consumers admit that they reuse the same password on all websites because it's it's got to be higher. But in the end, an account takeover is then just going to be that compromised account being controlled by a fraudster for whatever purpose. And it's more valuable to them than just having a credit card number because there's so much they, more they can do with those accounts that they've obtained. They not only can use them to make purchases, but they can also send spam, they can post fake listings to a marketplace, or they can uh, post misinformation in order to you know, sell, oh gosh, we've seen on Telegram in order to sell fake va uh, COVID vaccine passports or even fake vaccines, which have been uh, sold. So you can get really into a, a nefarious area there. But then they can also just leave fake reviews for their own fake storefront that I already mentioned on the marketplace. They can do so much with that account that it's not a surprise to see that it's increased 307% from Q2 2019 to Q2 2021. I actually looked it up in that same two-year period. The S&P 500 rose by about 18%. And so if you're a fraudster who is adept at you know, getting and cleaning and selling and repackaging these accounts. For you, this is where the economic boom is. And this is the wave that you are riding to make as much money as possible. And it's just a daily deluge of credentials that are posted for sale and so many different marketplaces popping up that replace those that have been taken down, you know, by government efforts, that it's just a, a it's a never ending issue and it's really moved into the forefront of merchants attention, which is I'm, I'm glad about sort of even superseding just the traditional card not present stolen credit card fraud. Yeah, and I think as a consumer paying attention to those. Um, so I use LastPass now and I didn't use it in the past, uh, but uh, paying attention to those emails that come out that says this account has been breached make sure you change your credit card number. Um, I had the unfortunate experience of logging to Netflix one day and not being able to log in and then trying to do a lost password and then calling him and finding out that somebody had been able to take over my account. And, you know, the unfortunate part of that is I'm still getting recommended TV shows of the other person, <laughs> which hey, that could be a horrible thing in your life if you're really depending on watching Seinfeld every day. Um, so in all seriousness, though, if, you know, me paying attention and being lazy, you know, like, and if you have kids you and you share your Netflix account, which I'm pretty <laughs> sure everybody does, you want it as easy as possible for everybody to log in to the account and, uh, and that further makes it a possible breach because now you have your login and your password that you've sent in a text to your kids. Oh, yeah. And, and of course, if they're at college, they've given it to every one of their roommates who then, anyways, we, we can see where this can go. As soon as you start, start sharing that information, it's yeah. not just uh, yourself as the consumer, it's what you do with that information and how you store it. And I think you make a great point about making sure that a you're changing your password on some frequency, but not using the exact password mm -hmm. over and over again uh, at every, on every single site because people do figure that out. And it is like you said, packaged on and sold on the dark web. I think yeah. that's a really great, great point. And, and you brought up something else that's really vital about merchants taking a holistic end-to-end -end approach to not only stopping ATOs, but dealing with accounts that are taken over anyway, because merchants can't do much other than encourage customers to have good password hygiene and have good behavior surrounding that. There inevitably will be some ATOs that, that come through. And in those instances, 
if merchants haven't yet looked at what the fraudster can potentially change within an account and whether they can change it back to the way that it was, when that legitimate customer logs back into their restored account after the ATO, they're going to be, it's, it's like walking into a home that's been burgled. There's, you know, drawers pulled out, items are scattered, some things are missing, others are broken, some things you didn't have there before might be there. It, it's a complete mess. And so if you're not able to remove spam messages that were sent via that account, someone could go back into their Facebook account and just see hundreds of messages and that people are still replying to saying, stop spamming me or I'm blocking you and reporting you and still getting all of that buzz and activity when they are the you know customer that's been using Facebook for a decade and they should have a better experience than that. So you know Facebook isn't the only example. This is for any merchant that has uh, accounts and can be subject to ATO, but it's it's rare when building up that uh, sort of user experience that merchants consider having a plan in place to reverse all of it, or at least reverse the worst of it to then restore those accounts. And I, I see that time and time again. Yeah. And to be fair, Netflix was very nice about <laughs> you know, getting our, our account restored and, and even was nice when I said, okay, I'm just going to change it from a small P for my password to a capital P password. They suggest that I had used something that was more difficult than password as my you know, password. We won't tell anybody, but you also changed the A to a four. Like you just, you took oh, it Oh, I haven't thought about that one. I just use ampersand. <laughs> um, so, you know, going through your report, um, you, you mentioned an uptick in attacks for fintech, digital goods, uh, services. Uh, how do you think that's affecting e-commerce nowadays? Ah, so when it comes to fintech, let's start there. Fraudsters, they go where the money is. They're not looking for the most difficult um, the most difficult scheme or scam. Of course, some of them do take on that challenge, but by and large, the majority of fraudsters are just looking to cash out or just looking to take whatever they can get their hands on and turn that into funds. And so FinTech accounts are a primary target because if you get into someone's bank account, if you're then able to make a withdrawal at a local ATM, then you've turned that quickly into a cash uh, withdrawal that can't be disputed or can't be reversed. You have the cash in hand and you're done and ready to go. So that is always going to be a huge target for them. And then when it comes to digital goods and services, we actually found in a survey that consumers feel most at risk with their social media accounts. About 50% of consumers who answered the survey said they felt like those accounts were most at risk, followed closely by financial services. And what I find interesting is that there are quite a few social media uh, websites that have pivoted into also supporting payments whether that be within their own marketplace, whether that be just sort of a, a way to, to pay on their platform, to give donations, whatever that may be. So when we talk about fintech and then digital goods and services, there is quite a bit of blurring there where in the end, it's still somebody's money at risk, somebody's financial account at risk, and consumers know how difficult it can be in a lot of instances to get money transferred back into their account or to try to restore access to that. And nobody wants to go through that process. So when, when fraud is, is looked at at the high level of the entire fraud economy, and you can see that that is just sort of one part, it also becomes clear that when fraudsters get those funds so easily, that allows them to then do more and more within the fraud economy, take more actions, and actually rely on their fraud as a steady source of income. We'll see spikes throughout the year. Um, one thing that we'll call the summer spike is each year, SIFT generally sees the fraudiest day, so the day with the most identified fraudulent transactions happening in the summer. And we also see that coincide with patterns of uh, young people who are ending school for the year and now have free time in the summer. 
announcing that they've come back in the fraud forums and that they're ready for a summer of scams to try to make as much money as possible. And those things will really go hand in hand. So having just the cash available, I can't tell you how many videos I'll see of bragging of for cash out fraud of people going to ATMs. And it doesn't even require making a, a fake credit card and programming the information onto that. When so many banks will support a mobile withdrawal at an ATM, that's even faster for the fraudsters. It, it just goes to show you each innovation is something that they will look at and see how they can take advantage of it. And it's great for consumers, but fraudsters are right there in lockstep with them. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned fraud economy, um, that the that under underground economy that runs and helps, not helps, that hurts merchants and um, uh, and drives some of that business and in, like, innovation in the wrong way. Uh, maybe you could speak to how, uh, as as a merchant. When they're looking at you, you mentioned social media. Like I sometimes buy things on Instagram because I'm enthralled by the new bicycle kit or whatever it is that there are dry land swimming gear. I bought that last winter. Um, how when somebody goes to make one of those ads and the merchant is deciding, hey, I'm going to do this ad on Instagram. We're going to see how it goes. And again, on Instagram, that merchant is thinking, oh, I want to get this sold. So I'm going to have as little, as little information that I can put in to get that purchase because I'm paying a lot for this ad. How, how do they, what, what advice do you have so they could deal with some of that? Uh, I'm paying for this big ad, but I also want to make sure that the person buys it when they click. Oh, wow. Yeah, not knowing some of the specifics about you know, how those discussions go or how the payment might flow through that social media platform then to the merchant. I do think that in some cases, uh, it will be that social media platform that takes on some of the risk because if whoever's the merchant of record actually processing the transaction is going to be the one that is then responsible for doing any kind of fraud prevention work because they're the ones who hold the funds. So it sort of then depends. Now, if it's just directed through and you go to the merchant's website and the merchant is saying, oh, good, I got a referral. I got a redirect from that ad. They're on our platform now. They're making the purchase. We want to be able to lock this in because we want this new audience. Then, of course, they're going to be the ones making that decision. So being aware of what the common sort of fraud attacks against your platform are and also what is being or what the potential for abuse is can be helpful in that situation. I've, I've got two examples there. One of the companies that I used to work for, we allowed uh, to connect a social media account to your account on this platform. And we noticed an enormous uptick in connections via one specific social media platform. And when we looked at those accounts more closely, we realized that not only were they connected, but from the social media account to our platform, the users had the same profile picture every single time. And that was not something that was normal. It ended up being that that was sort of a couple of years uh, notice in advance of a breach that was later made public of that particular social media platform. And that that was a coordinated fraud attempt where they were taking those breach credentials and then using them through our website. And then also just adding the profile picture, doing all of that so that the identities looked like they would match. But of course it was too suspicious for us. So seeing what kind of activity or what kind of volume you would expect, looking for aberrations is one way to potentially approach it. And then, ah, the other one that I wanted to point out is maybe that ad is running a discount. Maybe it's offering 20% off. Maybe it's even offering 50% off. It's a really generous offer. There are, a, there are networks of resellers that exist who look to either buy items using stolen payments, getting them completely for free and then reselling them elsewhere, or just at significant discounts, not using any kind of 
fraudulent payment method, but trying to stay therefore under the radar of fraud prevention efforts while still taking advantage of a merchant because they're not a customer who might return, you know, again and again and make full value purchases or or other uh, purchases on the platform, but instead are just looking to take advantage of that discount and then resell the merchandise elsewhere. We'll actually see advertisements for that on fraud forums saying, hey, whoever can run these purchases through this website, let me know and we'll split the money. So also looking at the consumer's behavior pre and post transaction and finding those patterns of if we're running this ad, what kind of leads is it generating for us? And are these sort of one and done purchases? Do they look like they have a fraudulent pattern? I know all of this sounds like a lot of work and it would be a lot of work to manually do, but as, as we mentioned earlier, being able to use machine learning, being able to use that technology to help us, that's a better way to surface those patterns and see is that expensive ad on Instagram or whatever platform really worth it. Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a very good point about who who could be doing that work and having a service who's an expert at it is always the best way to get that done. Um, I think one other good point you brought up is is that that is that social media login. A lot of people, well, a lot of sites have a login from say something like Facebook, and if somebody gets access to your Facebook account suddenly they also have access to every other account that you have access to mm -hmm. through that. And um, having, uh, having that fraud protection in place for that user in general is going to protect the merchant from the attacks, um, however they get access or try to purchase from you. And then from the merch or from the consumer side, again, being aware of the fact that okay, now I've made sure that my password is different on all these sites, but also being aware that I need to either disconnect or refresh my connections with my log, my social logins across all my sites in, in a timely manner. So they don't sit there for years and years or however that time is and let somebody, you know, overtake your social account. And then suddenly they've logged into a merchant and they're buying stuff and, and shipping it to a new address. Yeah, 100%. And please enable two-factor authentication or whatever steps you can when it's available. I love to be able to you know, enable fingerprint or uh, using an app like Google Authenticator. I try to rely less on SMS verification because I know that puts me at risk in cases of SIM swapping or phone number porting attacks, but just adding that level of friction to your own accounts, like choosing as a consumer to opt into that friction could make those accounts less attractive for fraudsters who won't go the extra mile to try to work around those, uh, those protections. Yeah, so two two points on two or two points on that. The two-factor authentication, or make sure you download your codes because yes. when you change your iPhone and you didn't back up your two-factor authentication account and you didn't have your codes, you have to go back and redo all that two-factor authentication stuff. Not that I know from experience, but I know from experience. Um, and that phone number porting is real. Um, I, you know, I, I think at one point I, I, um, somebody used my phone number to sell car warranties. I don't know if you've ever gotten a call about your car warranty is about to expire. Well, suddenly uh, one day I got about 40 callbacks saying, oh I don't own a car or my car, my car that doesn't even have a warranty, or I just bought mm -hmm. my car or stop calling me. Mm -hmm. I literally changed my voicemail message to, I did not call about your warranty. I mean, people laughed at it because it was, uh, it was so funny with the way I said it, but it was a very annoying to suddenly get a flood of calls. And it may, it just it goes to show that it's very real, that SMS is not the best way. I mean, I guess two-factor authentication is better than one. Yes. So SMS is better than nothing, but be aware that it is possible to also hijack your SMS account and get around that two-factor authentication. 
and I've even seen in the past where it wasn't necessary to go through the problem of SIM swap or phone porting. And instead, the fraudster was able to find out that the uh, online login of that cell phone provider would allow the SMS or text messages to be seen within that account. So all they then had to do was get the email address and password combination that worked on that cell phone provider's website and then just look at the text messages there. And so the real uh, you know, account holder would be like, why did I just get a text you know, verifying my login to Chase Bank? And the fraudster didn't care that they had gotten the text because the fraudster was gonna be quicker on doing what they then wanted to do within that bank account. So there's so many angles that that can be approached from if you're a fraudster and you have the time to be creative, unfortunately. Yeah, the, the only thing I have to say about that is if your kids are in high school and uh, good luck going through 10,000 text messages a day, <laughs> Oh, that's which of funny. course they would anyways, but that's just a, that's just a, just a joke. Um, so as we have a, we have a few minutes left, why don't you just tell us what are you reading? What are you listening to, to kind of keep up on this, uh, on this topic? So uh, as far as what has come out of you know the conferences happening, like the one I was at a few weeks ago, is the industry is also releasing reports in advance of the holidays. And so to stay on top of the uh, world of fraud, I'm really interested in seeing both within our own research in the deep and dark web to see what fraudsters are talking about, but what merchants overall plans are and priorities are so that they can prepare for this holiday season. It's gonna be you know, not as unprecedented as last year, but it is one that will still be unique and we can't just expect that things will happen as they do. So again, trying to stay up on those sort of industry you know, third-party academic publications. Another thing I've been focusing on is I've actually been reading um, some studies that were released. One was through the National Institute of Justice, which is a part of the Department of Justice, on deterrence and what actually works to deter criminals from committing crimes. Because when we look at fraud online, it is very rare that a fraudster actually gets caught and gets put through you know, the, the law enforcement process and ends up having any kind of real penalty for committing fraud, even at a, a high scale. And what I've been reading about deterrence there shows that it's not even the penalty that would deter somebody, and it's not that process, but it's the potential or likelihood of being caught. And that made a light bulb go off for me because fraudsters operate as if there's so little information about me out there. I'm basically anonymous. I'll never be caught. And to a degree, that is true because the worst that might happen to them is that their order is blocked or their account is closed and then they just move on somewhere else to continue their fraud. So some of that kind of work that I've been doing to see if there's other ways we can think about approaching reducing fraud online and the impact on merchants is what could we do to affect deterrence and to potentially make fraudsters realize, believe, have it be real, however, that there is more of a possibility they'll be caught which doesn't even mean then that we have to you know, catch them and go through all that, but just having them know that could deter the amount of fraud attacks that merchants experience. But we'll see, it's, it's sort of an early days idea, but it's uh, definitely worth pursuing. Yeah, that's good. If you have one bit of uh, advice you could give a merchant right now, what would that be? Uh, please ask questions and don't be afraid to share anything that is happening on your platform that might seem negative. A lot of merchants don't like to talk about fraud. They don't want to admit that there might be a fraud problem or they might think it you know, reflects badly on their brand. If you're talking to somebody else within the trust and safety space, we have seen it already to some degree and fraud is affecting everyone. So please do not hesitate to speak up there is no shame that fraudsters are going after you and we can absolutely help. Great. Uh, and 
As we close out, I give everybody an opportunity to do one shameless plug about anything you'd like to plug. So Brittany, what would you like to plug today? So you told me this at the beginning of the podcast and I just thought, oh no, too many choices. I can plug anything. But I think what I'm going to focus on is as you know, we do our slow rollout to reopening and people can go back to doing uh, activities in person is if you were somebody who had done quite a bit of volunteering in the past and then had to stop that due to the pandemic, maybe take a look and see what opportunities are coming back for you. I know that my local community here in Astoria uh, in New York they're doing a lot of cleanup activities, which are nice and socially distanced and outside, but we get to clean up and beautify parks. Uh, that's something that I have seen and I'll be participating in. And it's just, you know, it, it's a, a helpful step back towards normalcy. So here in New York, I think Volunteer Now is one of the bigger organizations that can keep you up to date or NYC helps, but I'm sure you've got something local in wherever you are in the world. And it's just a, kind of a reminder that it's it's okay to get back there and it, there's ways to still help people while being safe. Yes, thank you for that. That's very good. Uh, Brittany Allen, the you're the, the lead, you're the head of digital trust and safety. Not the head. Is, Don't say that. Don't, Don't say that. We're we're a collaborative team, but I, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, for SIFT, the leading prod, the leading fraud provider. Yes, we'll go with that. Yes, please give all the credit to SIFT. There's so many uh, really smart and intelligent people that are, when that report uh, comes out, the Q3 index, our data scientists did a huge analysis into a uh, proxy ATO credential stuffing ring that people should really read up on. So there's a lot of great info we have to share. Great, thank you for uh, being with us today. This has been a great informative podcast and uh, we hope to have you back again soon. Thank you, Brent. Yep. The Talk Commerce podcast is sponsored by SwiftDotter. E-commerce developers solve problems daily. In fact, some of those seem like mountainous hurdles that must be climbed in a matter of hours. Stress levels can go through the roof. No wonder the plague of burnout affects developers too. Ah, but there's a vaccine for that. Investing time in your career will take you farther than you ever imagined. Meet SwiftDotter. Swift Otter exists to help you become the e-commerce hero that is indispensable and irreplaceable at your company. We do this through Magento certification study materials and Joseph Maxwell's most recent book, The Art of E-Commerce Debugging. Go to swiftotter.com to learn more about how you can quickly climb the ranks in your quest to be a better developer. While you're there, use the coupon code TALKCOMMERCE for 15% off any digital goods at SwiftDotter.com. Cloud is the new normal for companies of any size. Buying, maintaining, upgrading, and disposing of machines is expensive and complicated. Amazon Web Services, managed by eWay Corp, offers an easy-to-use, flexible, cost-effective solution to all your infrastructure needs. E-Way Corp can provide a secure, reliable, scalable, high-performance network that will make your office hum, not literally. E-Way Corp has saved its customers an average of 31% on their IT costs while adding 62% to the bottom line efficiency. To top that, their customers have seen 43% fewer security incidents. Go to eWayCorp.com to learn how you can start saving money and headaches by moving to the cloud. That's E-W-A-Y-C-O-R-P dot com. Thank you again for listening. My name is Brent Peterson, and it has been my pleasure to be your host today. Please rate and subscribe.